So today we're going to take our eyes and we're going to look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is, it's a term that we use pretty loosely, right? Like, um, like uh, there's the whole denominations that are the disciples of Christ. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you know at least Jesus had 12 guys who he had disciples. And what we're going to see is what is a disciple, what is a disciple not, and where do we get confused? Right, because I get confused a lot about who is and who is not a disciple, and you may as well. And so we're going to work through that, looking at who is inside of the discipleship path of Jesus and those who are outside as well. We're going to look at the book of Mark today, Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark. Mark is in the New Testament, second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, then comes Luke and John. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be beginning in verse 7, and we're going to pick up uh, the, what Jesus is doing. He's just healed this man on the Sabbath uh, in, in the uh, synagogue. Uh, the Pharisees, scribes, the leaders of the Jewish church have decided they want to dispose of Jesus, but his ministry continues to grow, and people are flocking to him. And we see that starting in verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from the region beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon with the great crowd. Um, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. I want to stop here, okay? So they give a lot of names of places that you may not be familiar with um, if you didn't study biblical geography. Um, that's great. Here, here's basically what Mark is trying to say. After Jesus did this miracle in the synagogue, he left and he went out to an area where there wasn't a whole lot of people. And he went out by the sea, uh, kind of in a more remote area on the Sea of Galilee, and people came from everywhere, north, south, east, and west, from the furthest reaches, um, they came to see Jesus. And why did they come to see Jesus? It says it right there, right? Because they heard of the things that he could do. And this is something that's going to follow Jesus everywhere he goes, all the way up until his arrest. People follow Jesus because of what he can do. Bob Wilson, who preached uh, two weeks ago, I guess, talked about this. There's a lot of people who are interested in Jesus Christ because of what Jesus can do for you. Right, right. What, what does Jesus do? I want to get a part of that. I want to, I want to lay my hand on that miracle worker because he can, he can heal me. He can fix me. He can bring uh, health to my mind and health to my body. And so people would flock to Jesus just to see what he could do, kind of like a circus, right? Let's see what this circus act is going to do next. And there were great crowds of people. And they were all over him, and they were surrounding him, and they were pushing in on him, and they were pressing in on him, right? And verse 10 says, for he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him, right? He was the sort of person where wherever he went, a crowd would push in on him and try to get a piece of whatever it was that Jesus had to offer. And whenever the unclean spirits, those who were uh, demon-possessed, um, saw him, the unclean spirits fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God, but Jesus strictly warned them not to make him known. This is one of the interesting things in the book of Mark, and really in a couple of the Gospels, is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he spends a lot of time telling people not to talk about who he is. Right, This is like demon-possessed people. Uh, the demons know who Jesus is because Jesus is the Son of God, and they, and they cry out, and Jesus is basically telling them, shut up, I don't want people to know that right now. Right? I don't want people to know that, and they probably don't want you to know it from a bunch of uh, like devils either. Right? These, y'all aren't the best witnesses for the gospel message. And so Jesus strictly warns them not to tell anything, but there's this great crowd 
of people. But here's the deal. In the midst of the crowd, there may be some disciples of Jesus, but just because you're in the crowd around Jesus doesn't mean you're a disciple. Right? And, and I, I've been to a lot of churches in my life, and I've been to a lot of big church things. I've been to events with 20,000 uh, people gathered around uh, some sort of a Christian theme, right? Whether uh, there's a speaker and there's bands and there's 20,000 people there to be a part of that. And in the midst of that crush of people, sometimes people think, because I'm here and I'm a part of this thing that makes me a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's not true, right? right? And the old saying, right? Preacher saying is just because you're, you're in the garage, it doesn't make you a car, right? That's the idea here, right? Just because you're in a church, just because you're in a religious setting, it doesn't make you a Christian. This is something that we need to test inside of ourselves sometimes, right? Am I truly following Jesus Christ or am I just getting near Jesus because it makes me feel good, right? There's a euphoric state that comes with worship. It's something we have to be um, kind of mindful of, um, that, that you can get swept up in these uh, emotionalism and sensationalism and we think, man, what a great moment I had with God. But if all you're doing is seeking another high with Jesus Christ, you're not really seeking Jesus, Right? You're seeking out your own purposes for what Jesus can do. And so there's this big crowd. There may be some disciples there, but not everyone there is a disciple. They're there because of what they can get from Jesus. And so Jesus went up on a mountain, verse 13 says, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now this is the, uh, the calling of Jesus' disciples. He looks at the crowd of people, and he says, all of these people are here for their own purposes, but Jesus says, I have a purpose for some of you. And so he calls out of the crowd certain people for his ministry. Those who he desires, he calls, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Here is the work of the disciple of Jesus Christ, right? It's spelled out in verses, what, 14 and 15, right? He calls these twelve, and they are called to preach and to, and to cast out demons. These are, this is the work of a disciple uh, in the New Testament period. When Jesus is there on earth, the main jobs they have is to preach the word and then to do the work that Jesus did. Right? The same work that Jesus is doing, casting out demons, healing people, that's the same work that they're supposed to do to validate their message. Right? The message is the important part. Right? Jesus wants people to hear the message, but the message is validated through the miracles that they do. And he calls these 12 guys, and we know some of these guys, and we don't know some of them, right? If we were to take a, like a Bible trivia test right now and ask you all to name 12 of the disciples and quote your Bible and do it, right? Some of y'all would get like Simon and John and James, and then like things get a little touchy. You're like, I don't know, Andrew and Philip. I think there's got some guy named Thaddeus in there, right? We start throwing out random biblical sounding names. But there's 12 of them. If you read in each of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, there, I think there's a list in all four of those gospel accounts, and the lists are very, very similar, but there's sometimes there's like, well, this guy's called this here, and he's called this over there. I'm not really interested in introducing you to all 12 of the disciples right now, because while they're important, right, what, what's important here is to see what makes them disciples, right? Why is it that Jesus called them, and what is it that they're supposed to be doing? So he calls these guys, including Judas Iscariot, uh, and then verse 20 says, he went home and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when he, his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is, this is the, the, the beginning of kind of the teaching section that Jesus is about to have. Jesus goes home. He now has 12 established 
people, leaders, apostles, sent people to be disciples, to follow after him, to do the work that he's already doing. And he goes back home. We don't even know where home is. We assume this could be Peter's home, where Peter, uh, Peter's mother-in-law was healed just a couple chapters earlier in Capernaum. But we don't even know. He went to a home, and he's in that home, and, and people hear, oh, Jesus is back from the mountain, and they crush in on him so that you can't even eat, right? Now, I don't know how much room you need to eat, right? Uh, but, like, you know, I, I can eat like this, right? So you, you couldn't even do this, right? They, they, no elbow room. It was just absolutely a crush of people, right? Because they wanted to be near Jesus. And then Jesus' family heard that he was back, and there was this crush of people around him, and then they went to get him. And why did they went to get him? Because they said he is out of his mind. This is weird, right? Right, Jesus, who's now like 30 years old, right, has a family, and we don't know much about Jesus' family. We know a, a little bit that God has shown us through other parts of the scripture, but he has brothers and maybe sisters, and he's got a mom. We don't know what happened to Joseph. Joseph disappears really early on in the, in the, in the gospel story, so Joseph could have died when Jesus was young. We don't know, but he's got a mother, and he's got some siblings, and maybe, you know, maybe he's got some cousins and whatever, but they hear Jesus back, and they hear there's this crowd of people around, and they're like, oh my goodness, Jesus has joined the circus. We need to get him out of it. Right? That's kind of what they're thinking. They're like, this guy has gone out of his mind, and everyone's going to look at him. And like you feel, have you ever been there? Like you feel bad for someone because everyone's staring at this person, right? And that's what they they looked at. Oh, poor Jesus, right? Everyone's staring at him. We need to go help him. And so they they get up and they go to where Jesus is because uh, they think he's gone crazy. We don't know what's happened to him, right? They didn't understand it. And G, Mark is going to begin to tell a story. And he's going to finish the story at the end of, of this passage here about the family. But what he's trying to show is just because you're related to Jesus doesn't mean you're a follower of Jesus, right? This is the the closest people who've known Jesus the longest, right? They've known his honesty, his integrity, his uprightness, his moral character. They've known him forever. But then right now, in this moment, just because they were physically related to him, just because they know him so well, it doesn't give them any head start towards the kingdom of God. Right, these people aren't disciples of Jesus because they don't really understand what he's about. They don't get it. And likewise, parents of good Christian parents here today, I want you to know, like, just because you're a faithful person, just because you have a deep and abiding faith and a knowledge of who Jesus is, that thing is not transferable to your children. And likewise, just because your parents were faithful doesn't mean that you necessarily have an advantage either. Right? Sometimes growing up in a family of faith can be a disadvantage to the gospel. Um, I, I, it, can, it can be a sort of thing where a kid is introduced so young, and, and they, they fall out of love with Jesus before they ever even meet who Jesus really is. Right? And so I just want you to know, God doesn't have grandchildren. This is, a, this is like a general principle, right? He has children. Right? Sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. When I baptize, I've, I've had the privilege to baptize four? of my children, I think, four of my children I baptized. Um, I've had the privilege to baptize all of them, and, and, and I say the same thing every time I baptize one of my children. I'm standing in the tub, like that one back there, uh, and I look at my son or my daughter, and I say, it's my privilege to baptize you, right? Right, as my brother or my sister, right, in, in Christ. Right, my child, who, who is, you know, I don't know if you were doing genealogy, would be below me on the family tree, Right? God's family tree has just one level. There's sons and there's daughters. There's not, oh, you're Matt's child, so you're a grandchild of God because Matt's a child of God. 
oh, your, your great-grandfather was a good preacher, so here you are here, and we just kind of work the gene. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't pass down from generation to generation. Each person has to have their own unique relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus' brothers and sisters, possibly, and mother at this time didn't understand it. Now, they, they'll get it, right? Some of these uh, children of Jesus, James, uh, one of children of Jesus, brothers of Jesus, uh, it went all Da Vinci Code on you there for a minute, no one caught it. Um, but, but some of these brothers of Jesus, like James, become influential leaders in the church, and they understand what Jesus did after his resurrection. But until that point, they, they, they don't even seem to get it then. And so they say he's out of his mind, and then the story changes immediately to a different little story. It says, and then there were scribes, verse 22 says, who came down from Jerusalem, and they were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And so you have the, the parents of Jesus, who have a, or parents, you have, you have maybe the mother and the brothers of Jesus, who have a physical relationship with Jesus Christ. They have a closeness to Jesus Christ over years and years for saying he's out of his mind. And then you have religious leaders who should, be know, who should know what the Messiah is going to look like, who should understand what Jesus is better than anyone else. They have a religious closeness to Jesus, and they miss it, right? Instead of saying, like, he's filled with the Spirit of God, they say he's filled with the Spirit of Satan. That's who uh, Beelzebul is, right? It's a name for Satan. They're like, this guy is, is possessed by Satan himself, right? He's healing people on the Sabbath, He's, he's curing diseases, he's casting out demons, but no, he must be wicked, right? They, they missed it. The people closest in, in morality with Jesus Christ, the people who spent their whole life doing what's right and following the rules in the book, they missed it, right? They're not disciples of Jesus because they don't understand it. So Jesus responds with a, a couple of parables to break down why they're wrong about who he is. And he says this, he says... Um, in verse 22, how can Satan cast out Satan? For if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus says, look, first of all, he tells a story, right? He says, like, you can't have the same, same uh, house divided in half and fighting against self. If that happens, the entire thing will collapse. And so Satan won't rise up against Satan and do what Jesus is doing, right? What's Jesus doing? He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's driving demons away. Like he's on the assault against the demons. He's like, that doesn't even make sense, right? We, we wouldn't have this sort of civil war. And then he goes and he tells another story. He says, you can't rob someone's house. This is just like good, like rob a house 101. So if you want to know like how to be a better house robber, Jesus is giving you some advice here, okay? Um, he says, look, you can't rob a house if there's a strong man in it without binding him first. That makes sense, right? Like you don't walk into a house. Like I wouldn't try to rob Elbert Page's house because Elbert's a big, strong dude and I feel like Elbert could break me in half, right? And so like, so like but if I wanted to rob Elbert's house, right, I would find a way to bind him up and, and, and I don't even know what, what I would use, but I'd find some way and tie him up. And if I get him tied up and bound down, then all of a sudden I can walk around the house all I want, take everything I want, right? I can do anything I want. And Jesus is saying, look, Satan is that strong man. No offense, I didn't mean it like as negative as that just came across here, right? Satan is that strong man. He's got great guns. You can't, you can't do anything with him, right? But 
he is currently being bound. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, like he looks like a strong man. His house looks like no one's going to take advantage of him. And Jesus is like, but I'm doing exactly that right now. I'm binding him up, and I'm taking things that he thought was his. Right? He's taking back lives that Satan had claimed. Satan says, I'm going to put a spirit in you, and a spirit in you, and a spirit in you, and a spirit in you. And then Jesus is like, yeah, I don't like that. And so Jesus has bound Satan, and we'll see this binding again, right? If you read all the way in the book of Revelation, this binding happens kind of permanently, fully, completely at the end of the Bible. But in this period, when Jesus is on earth, Satan is being bound, and Jesus is robbing him of the things that Satan has claimed as his own. Jesus is doing the work of opposition to Satan. And so Jesus looks at the scribes and the Pharisees and says, don't you get it? I'm not on his side I'm fighting actively against him. And then Jesus drops some knowledge on him. He says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. Uh, that the children of man uh, will, be, will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus turns around and looks at him and says, Guys, I want you to understand, y'all are in a dangerous, dangerous place. God is gracious and forgiving. This is good news, by the way, for those of us who sit out here. God is great. He forgives all sins. Like every stupid thing that you've done, every willful decision that you've made, every word that you've uttered in anger, and every word that you've uttered when you've considered it carefully and decided still to cut them with your words. Every action, every look, every thought, every deed can be forgiven but one. And the one that can't be forgiven is looking at the Son of God, right? And then saying, your stuff that you're doing is actually from Satan. We have to be careful. Church people have to be careful of attributing the work of God to something else, right? And in this case, they're they're attributing Jesus' whole ministry to the work of Satan. And Jesus is saying, look, there's one sin that's unforgiven that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't tell these guys that you're eternally damned. He doesn't look at the scribes and say, you guys are eternally separated from God right now. No, instead he says, right, like, all sins can be forgiven except for this one. And he's warning them, be careful. Be careful about looking at what God has done and attributing it to anything other than what God is doing. And in our lives, this sin kind of breaks down this way. Be careful attributing salvation to anything outside of the work of Jesus Christ. Right, the sin that will not be forgiven, the only thing that you can do to eternally separate you from God is to reject what Christ did on earth for you. Right, that's the only thing you can do. To reject what Christ has done for you on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, to reject that is to reject the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that sin is unforgivable. But good news, you've got another moment right now. Right now, you have a moment to deal with that. Right now, at that moment, the scribes could have responded to Jesus and been like, whoa, you got this thing right, but they didn't. Well, we don't see that they did at least. Right? Those people who were religiously inclined, knew the word of God, understood the moral qualities that God wanted, they weren't followers of Jesus Christ. And those people who were relationally related to Jesus Christ knew the character of Jesus for his whole life. They weren't disciples of Jesus Christ. Guys, this is, this is scary sometimes for me as someone who's raising my children, right, in a family of faith. I don't want my kids to miss this, right? Like, it's dangerous sometimes to be close to God, but not to experience God's salvation for yourself. 
it's tempting. Like you grow up in a religious place and everyone around you is kind of religious, like the Bible belt is still kind of held together, right? And there's this idea, but, but you, know where, you know where society collapsed? You know where America's got a real soft collapsing thing? It's not inner city Chicago. I mean, there's shootings and stuff there. No, it's up and down the Bible Belt. Right? Oxycodone, meth, all the good things that are running around out in our neighborhoods out here. Guys, the reason that area collapsed is this exact thing. People who were religiously close to God had all of the advantages for generations of great preachers and faithful men Somewhere in the midst of that, there was an inoculation to the faith. And when that happened, our our society, the softness of our society began to collapse on itself. And so we have to personally, individually, one-on-one, each child, each adult, has to examine our lives and say, are we a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are we just someone who knows Jesus or is close to Jesus? I was 15 years old when I became a Christian, okay? So um, some of y'all were much younger than that. Some of y'all were much older than that when you became a Christian. But I got baptized when I was seven. And I was really, really relationally close to Jesus. I, I knew a lot about Jesus. I understood what he did, who he was. I understood what he said he did and how it worked. My mind understood all of that. I really liked the Bible. I read the Bible as like an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old. I, I, I ate it up. I loved it. But I was far from a follower of Jesus Christ. I was just someone who knew a lot about Jesus. And I did. I knew a lot. But that knowledge didn't help me. Instead, it was a hindrance. And so for many years, like about three years, God, I I feel very confident God was calling me to repentance. Like now on this side, I know it. And I constantly would get on my knees and I would pray to God and say, God, uh, I know that I've walked away. I know I'm not doing exactly what you want me to do, and so I'm going to rededicate my life to you. That was an old old term. We don't use that term very much anymore. I'm going to rededicate my life to you. I rededicated my life to Jesus Christ probably seven dozen times over those three years. And then something struck me when I was 15 years old. I was at a Sunday night service, and I was sitting about where the oars were sitting right there, and a guy got up and he shared the gospel message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins, and rose again, and he died for each individual's sins. And something in that message that I had heard thousands of times hit my heart different. And in that moment, I, my, 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 all of my pride and all of my other things that I had broke down, and all of the things that I had been relying on, that I knew God, that my parents were faithful, that I had been baptized, that I had been going to church, that my Sunday school attendance was good, that my Bible reading was good, all the things that I was relying on to be in good favor with God... They faded away. I don't recognize none of that mattered unless I had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, unless I personally accepted what Christ had done on the cross for me. At that moment, my life was changed, and it was changed at that moment at 15 years old. Um, I've shared the story before. I was sitting with my girlfriend, not my wife. My wife's gone. Good. Um, My girlfriend at the time was a girl named Melissa. I brought her to church. I was that guy. I would date a girl who wasn't like necessarily a believer. I would bring her to church, and she found Jesus Christ. And she did find Jesus Christ. Like she's, uh, according to Facebook, I'm not Facebook friends with her. My wife is, right? But she's she's still she's still following Jesus Christ. By the way, don't be Facebook friends with your ex girlfriends. That's just a fun, like easy fun fact for you. By the way, but but she's still following jesus christ and and like i had a part in that because she came to church because of me but i didn't know jesus i was bringing people in and i didn't know him but in that in that day i started crying i'm 15 years old and i'm starting to cry i don't cry 
I, 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 I literally, I think my tear glands are broken sometimes. I, don't, I just don't do it. But from that moment, God broke my heart, broke my spirit, and I recognized I needed to totally surrender everything that I had. Tim, in that moment, my life was changed. Because I was an outsider. Just like all the family of Jesus was outsiders. It's like the scribes were outsiders, and God brought me in. And God's in the business of bringing outsiders in. He does it every day. And so if you've been outside for a while, even though you're acting like you're an insider, because you've got religion, because you've got some sort of physical relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Like I'm physically related to him because my grandma was, my great-grandma was, so I must be too. I want you to know that that stuff doesn't work. It doesn't work. You're still on the outside, but God wants to bring you in today. He wants to bring you in like he brought me in 21 years ago. And he wants to make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what a disciple looks like. Finishing the story of Jesus' mother. It says his mother and his brothers came and they were standing outside and they called him and the crowd was sitting around him. And they said, your mom and your brothers are seeking you. And Jesus answered them. He said, where are my mother and my brothers? And he looked about those who sat around him. Those who were inside his circle. His 12 disciples. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. You want to know how you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's has God called you to be his, and then do you do the will of God? That's how you're related to Jesus Christ. Doing the will of God, and the term for that is lordship. Have you you allowed Jesus to be the Lord of your life? That means whatever he says you do, you don't get to argue against it. Wherever he says go, you go. You, you follow his leading. And I understand God's leading isn't always audible, right? Like God never yells at me and says, Matt, do this thing. But God speaks to me daily through his word and says, Matt, do this thing. Right? Love your neighbor. Seek the good of those around you. Right? Avoid these sins and do what's right. So I don't know where you are today with your relationship with Jesus Christ, but I don't want you to rely on your status with God to claim you're an insider without Jesus ever bringing you in. God calls those to be His. And God may be calling you today to be His. You may have been in church for 40 years, and today God's saying, I want you to come inside. Stop living outside. Stop doing things out there. Come inside. Be a part of my family. Stop pretending Stop playing church. A lot of us play church like we played house when we were little kids, right? I'm a mommy, I'm a da-da-da, I'm cooking, da No. We don't need to play church. God has given the church over to be his hands and feet in this world, but you've got to be a part of it first to do that work. Whatever you need to do, guys, this time is for you to decide and to respond to the message that God has. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given it to us to speak to our hearts and our minds. I pray that as we uh, have a time of invitation, that we would be